This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Over 20 years ago, I was invited by the youth pastor at the local church that I grew up in or you know, hung out with a lot of the young people and he invited me to go along with him to uh, Silverwater Jail and he wanted me to meet an inmate at that time who had become a Christian. Now, I grew up going to church. My parents were both Christians. Uh, Intellectually, uh, I knew Jesus, familiar with the gospel narrative, biblically literate, but my heart was still unchanged, unregenerated. I worshipped Jesus with my lips, turned up every Sunday, uh, paid uh, allegiance openly, uh, publicly, at church, uh, before Jesus, but he still wasn't the centre of my life. And so when I visited this Christian inmate in jail, his story, it struck with me. It had a massive impact upon me. He told me that for the first eight years of his prison sentence, he was, he was on his own in an isolated, segregated cell, 23 hours, seven days a week, lockdown, no human contact, no visitors. However, a couple of things happened in his life that changed him forever. First, on the night that he was preparing to take his own life, someone put a Bible under his door and he didn't know who it was. He took it, he read it, he got to the part where it talks about Jesus and he soon realised that he was a sinner and that God had sent his son Jesus to save him. Secondly, some time later, this five foot five Catholic nun Uh, pays a visit to him and shows and expresses, you know, Christ-like love towards him. The first official visit allowed by the governor of that jail in eight years. Thirdly, he became a Christian. His life changed. He started to share with others about Jesus. He began to pray for other inmates. And he went from from being this angry, violent, uh, dangerous, bitter, resentful man, and he became this loving gentle, humble, godly person. And he was well-known throughout correctional services. And so when I walked away from this encounter I had with this particular Christian inmate, I was suddenly confronted by the genuine Christian faith that he had and the life of hypocrisy that I'd lived with for so long. This morning we're looking at what Jesus had to say about the problem, the issue of hypocrisy particularly in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus mentions the word hypocrite three times in this chapter, and it all has to do with giving, prayer, and fasting. And so the word hypocrite, hypocrisy, in this passage comes from, I've read, I've been told, the Greek word that refers to the common practice where actors on the theatre stage would use different masks to play different characters. And so it's no surprise uh, when we call a person a hypocrite when that particular person's actions, conduct uh, or behaviour is not consistent with their belief, their values or the standards that they claim, profess or promise to keep. Now when Jesus raises the issue of hypocrisy in this passage, the question that I kept on wrestling with throughout the whole week was, where does hypocrisy come from? 
What does hypocrisy flow out of? And the conclusion that I arrived at, thanks to my brother Anato, we met up a number of times during the week, um, is that hypocrisy is one of the symptoms that expresses itself when we live the counterfeit life. The counterfeit life. Not the kingdom life, but it's a false presentation of the kingdom life. Now, if we backtrack, we might remember in the last couple of weeks that we've been going through chapter 5. Jesus, he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, providing the pattern and the precedent for the people of God to live under the rule and the reign of King Jesus. That is the new, transformed, radical way of living where the people of God are enabled by the power of God to live his way. Or as one particular well-known speaker said, not culture being lived up, but the kingdom being lived down. Kingdom way of living. And so if this is what the kingdom life looks like, then hypocrisy is the opposite, which is the facade. It's dishonest, it's delusional, and deceptive. Let's now begin by looking at the passage more closely. Now, I'm going to read not all, but a select few verses from chapter 6, where Jesus mentions this problem, just so we're familiar with the context. In verse 1 to 2, he says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be announced before others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. And in relation to prayer, verse 5, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on their street corners, to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. And finally, fasting in verse 16, when you fast, do not look somber, as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Basically, what Jesus does is he identifies the problem, helps us understand the underlying motive behind this issue, and then he warns us not to repeat the same mistake. So the first thing I want to look at is the problem with hypocrisy. Straight after Jesus finishes preaching the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus then takes these negative examples, these sinful acts like murder and adultery, which is forbidden under the Mosaic Old Testament law, and he didn't just uphold the law by declaring that these things are wrong, but he then moved from the hands to the heart by pointing out that the attitude of hatred is as equally destructive as murder. And the attitude of lust is just as equally destructive as adultery. But Jesus doesn't stop there, does he? Because when we get to chapter 6 this morning, Jesus takes these positive examples, these godly acts, these acts of righteousness, like giving, praying, fasting... And once again, as he moves from the hands to the heart, this time he shows us it's possible to even do good things and yet still have a bad, impure, ungodly heart. 
A heart that lacks godly motives, godly intentions, godly affections. The first religious hypocrite in the Bible, where someone did a godly thing with an ungodly heart, was Cain. And so in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis, it tells the story of Adam and Eve have two sons. Uh, The older one was Cain, the younger, Abel. Cain grew crops, Abel kept flocks. Abel brought his offering to the Lord, the fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Bible says that the Lord looked upon it with favour. Cain brought his offering to the Lord himself, the first fruits of the soil. But the Bible says there that the Lord didn't look with favour upon his offering. And so the only reasonable conclusion that we're left with is that it was because Cain's heart, his heart, wasn't right with God. Abel did a good thing with a godly heart, whereas Cain did a godly thing with an ungodly heart. Later on, Cain murders his brother Abel out of jealousy, confirming what God had already knew all along, that his heart was filled with evil and wickedness. It's possible for two people to do the same thing that seem godly, that looks good externally, and yet the disposition of their heart is far from God. That's what separates the godly heart and the one which is not. So it's possible to do good, but if your heart is not God-honouring, God-glorifying, God-centred, then we end up like Cain, the same problem. And so no matter how much we give to the needy, how often and consistently and fervently we pray, or how we fast, God sees everything. He sees all things. And so what's the problem? As the late 20th century American preacher Billy Graham put it, the heart of the problem is the heart itself. And this is why Jesus warns us in this passage, because with pinpoint accuracy, Jesus knows, Jeremiah 17, verse 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things, and no one or nothing can cure it. He knows, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, Only he is able to see and judge our inner, most deepest, hidden, secret thoughts and attitudes. And he knows, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, that nothing is hidden from his sight. Everything is uncovered and all things are laid before his eyes. And so his reason for warning us is not to expose us, hurt us, crush us, but he wants to spare us, liberate us from living the counterfeit life. The counterfeit life that is oppressive, that never satisfies, that is unfulfilling, no matter how many times you do it, how intently you do it, how consistently it happens, it doesn't satisfy. And so the question now worth asking is, what exactly motivates the religious hypocrite to engage in something that can be costly, time-consuming, exhausting, and futile. Well, this is where Jesus moves from the diagnosis of this sad situation, 
religious hypocrisy, good works, ungodly heart. And like this skilled surgeon with a scalpel in his hand, he goes deeper, further, right into the area of motives and intentions. Which brings me to the next point, the motive behind hypocrisy. First, the problem with hypocrisy, he names it, brings it to our attention, now it's the why, the reason behind it, what the American 18th century Puritan Jonathan Edwards called false religion. In the first part of the opening verse of chapter 6, Jesus identifies the motive that lies behind hypocrisy, and he's spot on. Whether it's the hypocrite in Jesus' time giving to the needy, or praying while standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, or the person who fasts intentionally, looking sombre, disfiguring their face so that others would know it's fasting day. Jesus says in the first part of verse 1, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Notice that phrase, to be seen by them. He then says at the end of verse 2 that the hypocrite who gives to the needy does so to be honoured by others. Or in verse 5, that the hypocrite who prays does it to be seen by others. And he says in verse 16 that the hypocrite who fasts also does it to show others they are fasting. The religious hypocrite has ulterior motives, and that is to be seen by others so that they're honoured by them. It is a life completely devoted, enslaved, preoccupied by what others think. And so these are just some questions that I want us to think about. Do we ever get caught up in what other people think of us? Are we totally absorbed in what other people think about us? Do we hate to let others down? Are we intent on pleasing other people? Do we fear that people will reject us? Are we afraid that someone might just find out that we're a fraud? You see, the person who does these things in order to be seen by others is the person who is really looking for acceptance, assurance, affirmation. But the problem here is that they're looking for it, all of that, in the wrong place. According to Jesus, hypocrites make that mistake of seeking good things from the bad place, the wrong place. It's really important to mention that Jesus never denounces the practice of giving, praying, fasting, because he never says, if you fast, if you give, if you pray, but he always says, when you do so. And so what Jesus really is condemning here are those who use Godly practices, acts of righteousness to gain praise and honour from others. The thing that Jesus brings to our attention here, and he questions, is really the purity of our motive rather than the outward observance. Hypocrites seek honour from others. They work for it. They long for it. Their life depends upon it. But Jesus warned them, and he warns us in the second part of verse 1, if you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. He also repeats the same thing, the same warning three times at the end of verse 2, 5, and 6. Truly, 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 I tell you, they have received their reward in full. 
There's nothing wrong with rewards. But what we're faced here with is that fork in the road, that choice between two things, looking good in front of others or glorifying the Lord Jesus. Yes, it's important to give and to receive words of encouragement, affirmation, commendation, but if that's the only thing we look forward to, long for, live for, then we become highly dependent on what others think of us. Our sense of worth and value depends on how others perceive us, and that's not the way to live. Certainly not the kingdom life, the Christian life. Again, seeking good from a bad place, looking for the reward in what people see and say will not last. But what God says will last. It will endure right to the very end. The 19th century preacher Spurgeon once wrote, The glory of men is a thing which can be bought, but honour from God, now that's something different. Please don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be a place for encouragement and edification in the church. Certainly there needs to be that generous spirit within us that comes from Jesus where we don't hold back. We're not afraid to recognise, to commend, to thank other people for the work that they do in the life of our church, in the GC groups, and the spheres of influence that we move around in. But more importantly, we need to live for the audience of one, and that's God. And only then we're free to live out what it means to be his kingdom people. Not drawing attention to ourselves, but pointing others to Jesus. Christians who do good work do it not so much to be seen by others, but even if it is seen by other people, hopefully they see more of God and less of them. That inmate that I mentioned at the beginning of the talk It's really interesting as I move around the bay and speak to other officers and inmates how much of an impact he has had on those at the bay. Like the officer, when they brought him in the first day, they got into a big punch-up. And then a number of months after that, they were both sitting in the same chapel service, listening to the same talk, reading the same gospel, praising the same name, the Lord Jesus because he dared to share the gospel with him. Or the hip man he got alongside and encouraged to read the Bible. And he opened the Bible and he read the Bible from cover to cover. To be seen doing the work of the Lord is to honour the Lord Jesus, not for our sake, but for his glory. So the final question is, what is the solution to the problem of hypocrisy? The third and final point, the antidote to hypocrisy. The solution to this problem is not simply to say to people, stop being a hypocrite. Because there has to be something far more superior, more potent, that will counteract what is ultimately a heart issue. Jesus says in verse 3 and 4, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He says to the person who prays in verse 6, but when you pray, go into the room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen, then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And finally in verse 17 to 18, 
But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus says, the one who is unseen sees what you do in secret. He will reward you. But also, the only real effective antidote that in the end will counteract the problem, the issue of hypocrisy, is not just simply recognising that God sees everything, but because of Jesus, remembering that he sees us differently. However, if we fail to grasp how God sees us, then we do things in order to be seen by others. The Bible speaks a lot on the way God sees us through Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 12 to 13 says, And yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. When we receive Jesus through repentance and faith, we become God's children, which is a gift, it's a privilege, it's an honour. We don't deserve it, but we get it. We don't earn it, but he gives it to us because of grace. But the moment we forget this, the moment we doubt this, the more likely we become vulnerable to hypocrisy. The more tempted we are to perform, work, look for ways to earn his love. And it's totally absurd. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 6 says, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and goodwill to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In Christ, we have every blessing. What more do you want? In Christ, we have been chosen. In Christ, we have been set apart. In Christ, God sees not our sin, but the righteousness of Jesus. In Christ, before the heavens and the earth were laid, its foundations, he decided to choose us, to become his sons and daughters. And finally, in Romans chapter 8, verse 14 to 16, he says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. You see, when we come to terms with our adoption, as God's kingdom people, that God in Jesus knows us, loves us, accepts us, then everything we do, whether it's giving, praying, fasting, whatever it is, comes from a place of gratitude, humility, and a desire to glorify him. In other parts of the world, people live in a class-conscious society. And even though that's also true of Sydney, Australia, but it's much obvious, much more obvious in places like India where you have the Hindu caste system. However, in the West, even though we live in perhaps 
a more egalitarian society where all people are equal and should have the same rights and opportunity, but we live in a self-worth conscious society. And so what sometimes happens is in order to establish, to recover, to maintain some kind of self-worth, we often work harder, we work longer hoping that we would be rewarded by validating or justifying our own value, either to ourselves or to those around us. And it's no wonder why more and more live in an overworked, sleep-deprived, highly stressed, self-medicated society. Tim Keller claims that the moment we accept God's judgment of ourselves, we then can stop asking the question of self-worth. Because no one's opinion of my worth, even my own, no longer matters. Because in the end, grace changes all of that. And so like Romans 8 says, those in Jesus are God's children. They have his spirit and his children don't need to be fearful anymore. Hypocrites are fearful. They're driven by fear, fearful of what others think fearful of whether they're good enough, fearful of the unknown future, fearful of whether their present efforts now, in the here and the now, will ever be enough for God in the afterlife. If Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is about living the kingdom life, restoring what was lost in the Garden of Eden, an intimate, personal relationship with God, devoid of shame, sin, death, decay, then the kingdom life is about becoming fully human again. It's about flourishing, flourishing as God's people for his glory, for our good and for the joy of others around us. Then we need to come to terms with our adoption. We need to grasp what it means to really, truly belong to Jesus. We need to see ourselves as God sees us in light of what he has done for us in his son. Back in the 1980s, the king of Tonga was visiting the Tongan community here in Sydney. And many of them came from within Sydney, other parts of the state and possibly around the country of Tongan heritage to see, greet, and pay their respects to the Tongan king. So these Tongan expats and the Australian-born second-generation kids like myself, they showed up at the Great Hall in Sydney Uni. And the Tongan cultural royal etiquette for greeting the king of Tonga, and I've seen it done before, and that only applies to Tongans, and I know this will sound crazy, to Australians, is to get on your knees on all fours and to crawl before the king. And that is a practice that has been going on for thousands and thousands of years. But apparently on this particular day, a four-year-old Tongan boy turns up with his parents and instead of waiting in line with his parents, to the horror of his mother... He breaks away from his parents and he runs straight up the middle of the aisle. And as he approaches the king of Tonga, and he's a solid specimen, <laughs> um, shoulders that are two and a half axle wide, 
built like a Mack truck, one of his minders steps forward to intervene, and he didn't really anyway. But everyone is surprised because thousands of years of royal etiquette gets broken. When the king of Tonga, he reaches forward and he picks up a four-year-old boy and he places him on his lap. While the child's parents and the rest of the Tongan guests, who they bow down to? To the kid who's got the box seat in the house. Friends, when God chooses to adopt us and make us his children, we don't need to perform anymore. We need to rest. We don't need to live the counterfeit life anymore. What we ought to do, what God is inviting us to do, is to receive, enjoy and rest in what he's done in Jesus like the kid who sits on that royal lap, we're invited to come to Jesus, receive him, rest in him, rejoice in him, because it's only through his perfect life of obedience, his sacrificial death on the cross for our sins, his bodily resurrection from the death back to life, for our hope in eternal life, that we ever get to live this kingdom life that we ever get the opportunity to serve God with a pure heart, not because we have to, but because we get to. As we draw close to the end, I want to encourage us to think through, to reflect. When we're invited to participate in the Lord's Supper, the bread and the juice, we're being reminded that God is calling us home to be a part of his family. His family whom he has called, whom he has adopted, whom he has saved to serve him wholeheartedly. Not like the religious hypocrite, but as sons and daughters who have been adopted by the king. Why don't I pray? Let's, let me pray. Father God, we thank you that your son Jesus came to live that life of perfect obedience, to take away our sin, to take away our shame, that we might be liberated to serve you, to love you, to devote our lives wholeheartedly to you for your glory and the joy of others. And so we pray, Lord, that as we've heard your word, change our heart, enable us to grow and become more like you, that we're able to live the kingdom life for your namesake. This we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.